they crushed his skull, I, I believe, with a tie iron, and they drilled a hole in his head um, with uh, some kind of power tool. Have you ever been threatened? Uh, sure, I've been threatened. Oh, okay. So in, in the infamous uh, Rolling Stones interview it, that was published in uh, early 2016, I'm going to quote El Chapo. He said, the day I don't exist, drug trafficking is not going to decrease in any way at all. So fast forward to January 31, 2019, wrapping up the trial of the century. I think the public is aware, more and more aware of the fact that fentanyl is um, as deadly as it is. What they may not be aware of is the fact that fentanyl is being laced into other drugs, not just heroin, but also methamphetamine and cocaine, and in some instances, even marijuana. That's how Prince died. I think he took a fake Vicodin, and he uh, thought it, it was a real Vicodin. When we were pursuing um, El Mayo. El Mayo was smart enough to know to run. <laughs> Simple as that. My, my wife one morning just kept on nudging me to get up, and it was like 5.30 in the morning. I didn't want to get up. She said, um, El Chapo escaped. And I thought I was dreaming. <laughs> that, which is, I really thought it was a dream, and I didn't, I didn't hear it. And then she kept on hitting me and telling me to get up. And we were thinking about launching on him. Um, I'm sitting at my desk in the Special Ops Division, and I see a picture of Kate Del Castillo, and I see two other individuals, and then finally I see a picture of Sean Penn, and they're all flying into Mexico City. <laughs> and um, right, right off the bat, it's kind of like, are they really going to meet with Chapo? One, one thing that jumped out at me, and I was surprised it didn't get more coverage, was... Based on testimony, El Chapo's uh, connections to the DEA. He still is into drug trafficking, and he happens to be the person responsible for the death of the DEA agent. That we will not stop pursuing him. He's He is public enemy number one for us. The best way to describe the security at the DEA's Manhattan office is that I couldn't enjoy the tidy bathroom in peace. Before taping this exclusive episode with the man who spearheaded the unprecedented hunt for El Chapo, I was escorted by a DEA official who patiently waited outside the restroom for me. Thank God that I merely needed to relieve myself ahead of the lengthy interview. <laughs> Inside DEA agent Ray Donovan's corner office, I soon noticed that the wall was decorated with El Chapo's prison shirt. Ray let me snap a photo of him in front of the framed shirt. For all you lotto junkies, El Chapo's jail number was handwritten on it, 3912. Ray Donovan politely asked if I wanted a, a photo of just me with the shirt, and I quickly responded, no thanks, that's all you. Although I don't speak Spanish, let me give it a shot. No problemo with El Chapo. <laughs> Obviously, Ray didn't think twice about provoking a guy who has literally buried his enemies alive. In fact, Ray also had the black baseball cap 
that El Chapo wore before originally being captured in 2014. So the real Ray Donovan is either brave, foolhardy, or maybe both. In this episode, we discuss the infamous 1985 murder of an undercover DEA agent, Enrique Kiki Camarena, in Guadalajara, Mexico. Over a 30-hour period, drug dealers tortured the ex-Marine, shattering his facial bones while force-feeding him drugs to keep him conscious. Pure evil. The president at the time, Ronald Reagan, essentially shut down the border for a while, placing enormous pressure on the Mexican government to help apprehend the perpetrators. So Trump wouldn't have been the first president to shut down the border for any reason. Since Camarena's death, cartels have understood the consequences of harming a DEA agent. Still, even with the security measures at uh, Ray's uh, office, I I kept looking over my shoulder during the interview, (laughs) which, by the way, was taped in the summer of uh, 2019. So I hope I don't seem too distracted. (laughs) Seriously. This episode covers the worst overdose crisis in U.S. history, caused mostly by opioids. And Ray Donovan pulls back the curtain of the operation to apprehend El Chapo, who's now serving life in America's inescapable prison. But we get into plenty of other interesting stuff. Ray provides insight into the death of music icon Prince, specifically why the opioid fentanyl that killed him was likely taken by accident. Ray also reveals the latest trend in the opioid crisis, meth production, which has escaped extensive uh, media coverage so far. Even with the recent positive news that overdose deaths fell for the first time since 1990, Fatalities from fentanyl and meth continue to rise. Cynics downplayed the capture of El Chapo, but at the very least, authorities sent the message, in my opinion, that no one is above the law. And they confirmed that the U.S. government remains the world's most fearsome force, whether your name is Bin Laden or Pablo Escobar or El Chapo. Let me give you a quick bit of government history. In June 1971, President Richard Nixon declared, quote, a war on drugs. And two years later, he created the Drug Enforcement Administration, mainly to combat drug trafficking. The so-called war on drugs generates plenty of criticism, partly because there's no end in sight. Even cocaine, the drug of the 80s, has undergone a resurgence, except that now... Most cocaine-related deaths involve the presence of fentanyl. For example, rapper Mac Miller, uh, who uh, tragically died in 2018 from fentanyl-laced coke. But if we really think about it, the war on virtually all crimes is indefinite. We don't capitulate because of that. Drugs will always be part of society. So um, I think it just boils down to how we handle the problem. And uh, I think it's a complicated issue that requires the right balance between punishment and treatment and education. Sentencing disparities along racial lines definitely needs to be addressed. Um, Now, it seems like public sentiment for legalized drugs uh, is at an all-time high, and it just keeps increasing. But in my opinion, that's no panacea. Cocaine and heroin becoming 
available to say Dwayne Reed or a drug dispensary is obviously problematic, but maybe it is worth experimenting with the idea of regulating certain recreational drugs and generating more funding for prevention and whatnot. At the same time, and I think this is where it gets complicated, uh, the drawbacks for marijuana legalization are being glossed over uh, by proponents. The increased consumption, the risk of addiction. Everybody loves to say prohibition failed, and sure it did, but legalizing alcohol brought its own set of problems, including a record number of related deaths last year, even more than opioids. Look it up. Actually, one of Ray's most surprising revelations is that America's demand for Mexico's marijuana remains sky high, no pun intended. I always thought that legalization was supposed to drastically reduce the criminal element. Anyhow, Ray confirms that the Jalisco New Generation Cartel is challenging El Chapo's Sinaloa Cartel for dominance. Its leader, Nemesio Cervantes, has combined smarts and brutality to turn the new generation into a global enterprise. But El Chapo's old organization still thrives with his two older sons and a brother now playing a uh, prominent, uh, prominent roles. They'll just have to avoid infighting. The Sinaloa cartel's most powerful figure remains El Mayo who co-founded the organization with El Chapo during the late 80s. I actually find El Mayo a bit more intriguing. At age 71, he's pulled off the most difficult feat for a drug trafficker, grow old without spending a single day in prison. This interview delves into the so-called trial of the century, and anyone who follows it knows that only Shakespeare could have created more treachery, betrayal, jealousy, Several members of El Chapo's circle testified against him in exchange for reduced sentencing, just confirming that there's no honor among thieves. Perhaps the biggest bombshell involved allegations uh, of bribes to Mexican presidents who unsurprisingly denied the claims. <laughs> but to me, the most surprising thing from the trial was El Chapo's apparent DEA connections. And Ray expands on the scenario of active drug traffickers making contact with the DEA. El Chapo received a lot of blame for the opioid epidemic after popularizing fentanyl-laced heroin to increase potency. But the crisis began in the 1990s when pharmaceutical companies downplayed the addiction risk while pushing painkillers. My old newspaper, the Washington Post, recently analyzed DEA data to reveal that from 2006 to 2012, America's largest drug companies unleashed 76 billion pain pills throughout the country. Folks, there aren't even 8 billion people on earth. Nuts. New York's Attorney General Letitia James has aggressively gone after the Sackler family which owns Purdue Farmer, the makers of the widely abused OxyContin. And top drug companies have been hit left and right with civil lawsuits from state and local governments, generating tens of billions in penalties. But it was great news in April when the DEA arrested two executives from a top pharmaceutical company, RDC, that basically allowed tons of opioid pills to be resold on the streets. 
For years, industry lobbyists seem to be effective in keeping Congress from demanding anything more than civil settlements from these greedy companies. I think such steps are necessary toward addressing criticism um, of disproportionate enforcement involving minorities. Bankers, though, have escaped arrest for their industry's role in laundering money for cartels. And Ray responds to my question about whether we might start to see bankers in jail. The extensive interview made Ray late for a meeting, which must have frustrated his sharp PR chief, Aaron Mulvey. But Ray kept giving expansive and insightful answers. So I never got a chance to get into his interesting personal background. Uh, to be politically incorrect, um, Ray kind of looks like a light-skinned brother. <laughs> but he's actually half Puerto Rican and half Irish. Ray spent a couple of years as a Border Patrol agent in San Diego before joining the DEA in New York in 1997. And although this was my first time meeting him, we actually both attended St. John's University at the same time during the early 1990s. While researching Ray's background uh, before the interview, I smiled to find out that the St. John's men's basketball team was a factor in his decision to attend the school. Same here. Coach Luke Carnesecca, Mark Jackson, Chris Mullen, Walter Berry, Jason Williams, Malik Seeley, Boo Harvey. Basketball junkies know those names. So I could have interviewed Ray for three hours easily. And I bet he has some interesting stories about protecting the border. Ray was passionate about his job. He dismissed my thoughts on the benefits of persuading El Chapo to cooperate with authorities, but I broached the name of Nicky Barnes, a.k.a. Mr. Untouchable, the legendary Harlem kingpin during the 70s. For two decades after Barnes received a life sentence, his empire continued to flourish, but in 1999, he suddenly became a government witness, citing the betrayal of several associates. Sound familiar? And the government was able to finally dismantle his former organization, forcing Barnes to enter witness protection. His cohorts called him a snitch, but Barnes, who died of cancer in 2012, once said in an interview, quote, I'd rather be out as a witness than be in prison and what they characterize as a stand-up guy. I'm out. They're in. End quote. So with that dose of reality, let's finally get to the interview. I'm here with Ray Donovan, the special agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Agency's New York office, the DEA's biggest operation in the country. Thanks for accommodating the Nuno and Company podcast in your uh, Manhattan headquarters. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Nuno. Glad to be participating, and welcome to the New York Field Division of the DEA. Thanks. Uh, you know, you oversaw the historic operation that uh, helped apprehend Joaquin uh, Guzman, uh, a.k.a. El Chapo, the uh, legendary drug trafficker. So now that he's in solitary confinement, what are your main responsibilities? Well, my responsibilities still go on. Um, the DEA is really in charge of pursuing national, international drug trafficking cartels um, throughout the world, really. Chapo being arrested and sentenced doesn't change our mission, our role. Um, as these Mexican and other international, transnational, organized criminal groups affect the United States, 
Our job is to pursue them, uh, to apprehend them, and to bring them justice. Okay. I just just before the uh, interview, I I went into uh, Ray's office and I saw the T-shirt, the the jail T-shirt that um, El Chapo um, wore before he was extradited, uh, while he was in prison in Mexico. There were I think twenty two agencies targeting him. How did you end up with that T-shirt in your office? Right. So <laughs> that's a really long story, but I, I, I can say this. Um, there were 22 different agencies, United States and Mexican agencies, that partnered partnered up to pursue uh, El Chapo. The reason why I got the shirt, it was given to me by the Mexican um, or the Mexico Regional Director for DEA mm-hmm. um, because of my role or our role in pursuing them as it related to what we did uh, to apprehend Chapo. So, so that's why the shirt is with me. Um, but there were so many other people that played a role, a really inter- integral role in pursuing El Chapo and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, th- you know, that's a, dis- that's a bold display. And you aggressively uh, pursue some of the most violent people, f- criminals on earth. I think it w- I, once El Chapo had uh, a rival killed because he declined to shake his hand in, uh, uh, I think, a peace meeting. So do you fear for your life? No. I, I think when you're in our line of work, um, it, it comes with the territory as far as this is, this is what our job is. And I think when you have these international criminals, they also see it as their role is to avoid law enforcement. And so it's part of their chosen uh, path, if you will, that we are constantly going to be pursuing them, looking for them to arrest them, apprehend them, and bring them to justice. So in the case of El Chapo, it's no different. He uh, decided early on in his life that he was going to be part of the drug game. And in doing that, you incur risks. And those risks are not just in Mexico, but every country that he's pushing drugs to or had pushed drugs to. And so that means that government, those law enforcement agencies, uh, were going to pursue him. And in this case, we that's exactly what we did. So um, certainly drug trafficking organizations here in the United States, they understand that uh, they're, tr- they're in the business to try to make money, mm-hmm. right? But they are also trying to avoid us to the best that they can. So it's part of the game is doing exactly that. Um, and so we're doing our jobs. I did my job, just like every other agent that is doing their job, to really safeguard um, human lives and protect communities all across America. Okay. But it, the risk goes both ways, though. I mean, there have been DEA agents who have died in the line of duty. Sure. and. When I was coming in and going through security, I saw the the uh, huge poster of um, Enrique um, Kiki Camarena. So I just wanted to spend a, a few minutes talking about him. He died in 1985. It's probably the most infamous uh, murder of a DEA agent. Uh, he was abducted. I believe he was going to see his wife. And... Um, you know, he was abducted uh, by uh, members of the Guadalajara cartel. And uh, they tortured him over a couple of years. They crushed his skull, I, I believe, with a tie iron, and they drilled a hole in his head um, with uh, some kind of power tool. So that's what I mean. You don't sure when you when you think about Kiki and others that have um, paid the ultimate sacrifice um, on behalf of the United States. 
Um, yes, they did. There's no doubt about it. And, and But it was also different uh, the way we investigated um, these groups throughout the, the generations going back to 1971. Mm -hmm. uh, what was happening in the 80s compared to what was happening in the 90s is technology changed how these organizations functioned. It also changed how we operated as well. And so historically, there was a lot more undercover investigations where we're doing meets with bad guys in hotels and motels and things have evolved just because of globalization and change and, and how um, these these Mexican Colombian cartels actually operate today. Um, they're, they're much more adept, they're much more tech savvy, they're much more global by nature. So even within the DEA, how we have evolved has changed some of the um, our strategies towards pursuing these groups. So um, things such as not saying that we do not put our lives on the line because we certainly do. I mean, anytime we hit a door, uh, we don't know what's behind the door. We still take many, many guns off the streets all across America. Um, Kiki and others here in New York have, have certainly paid the ultimate sacrifice. You can go, go throughout the history of DEA, and there were brave men and women that did that. But things have also evolved, is what I'm, what I'm saying to you, and, and, and how we pursue these groups has also changed, too. Right. And just to give uh, listeners some more background on Kiki, he was undercover, um, and he discovered a huge uh, marijuana plantation, and then that led to the uh, Mexican um, army destroying it. I think it was worth, you know, potentially billions to the cartel, so they, you know, uh, killed him. And then the U.S. government, I think it was one of the uh, greatest manhunt ever, and they captured several, put him in jail. Um, but um, you, you have you ever been threatened? Uh, sure, I've been threatened. Oh, okay. I've been threatened. Uh, you know, when I first came on a job is when I did most of my undercover, and so that's 24 years ago now. Is when uh, when you do undercover, it's really intimate. You're meeting with a bad guy, and uh, you don't know what they have on them. They don't know anything about you. It is a very risky scenario that we put ourselves in. There's no question about it. So have I been threatened? Yes, no question about it. But I'm also pretty confident in um, how I go about doing my business as well. Uh, when, you think of, when you talk about Kiki, like I said, those were different times. Um, but we have not for forgotten, nor will, will we forget, because one of the main architects of what happened to Kiki, Kiki is out and about in Mexico to this day. Mm -hmm. And that, that leads me to my next question, because I know there have been, you know, he's been, his stories have been de depicted in documentaries and film, but it seems like the D, his, he never faded from memories even before Hollywood started to tell his story, right? That's right. So each, we, we always recall what happened. We always remember what happened to, um, to Kiki Camarena. But not only to Kiki, but all of our other fallen brothers and right. sisters. There's no question about it. I think it's important that we recognize them because they paid the ultimate sacrifice. And not only them as individuals, but their families. Mm -hmm. Their families, their, their neighborhoods, they also pay a lifelong cost for uh, their bravery, to be honest with you. So each year we do recognize them every day that there is a uh, memorial for an individual that passed. We recognize that day. Um, and we also pursue, as an agency, some of those criminals that um, 
that we're involved with, in particular with, with Kiki Camarena. Right, and I think I, it's pretty cool that his son, uh, uh, Enrique Jr., I think he's a judge in uh, San Diego. That's right. And he was 11 when his dad died, and so that puts him you know, in his mid-40s, and I think he was a prosecutor before that. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Now, how many DEA agents have died over just... Isn't there like a wall, a there, DEA there is, wall or something? But like I don't that? know the exact number, okay. to be honest with you. But it's not you. a small number. Right? It's not a small number. It's, yeah, it, that's that's what made me curious uh, because you know, I, I even in interviews you're pretty assertive, and I'm like, man, that's these guys are dangerous. Doesn't Ray? <laughs> doesn't, right. Well, yeah. I, I I get it. I mean, it, it, they're dangerous, um, but they're also businessmen, uh-huh. and they also recognize that they want to stay. Um, undercover right. as far as they, uh, to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. If you put the spotlight of the United States government on them, right. they want to avoid that at right. all costs. And the Guadalajara cartel was pretty much dismantled. And that's after. what happened. Right. That's correct. So in in the infamous uh, Rolling Stones interview that was published in uh, early 2016, I'm going to quote El Chapo. He said, the day I don't exist, drug trafficking is not going to decrease in any way at all. So fast forward to January 31, 2019, wrapping up the trial of the century, um, and uh, the authorities in Phoenix, the border authorities in Phoenix, um, announced the seizure of the biggest fentanyl um, seizure in, in, in U.S. history. I think it was, uh, I, I, I don't know the, the uh, pounds or whatever, but they call it the biggest in uh, U.S. history. Did you have mixed feelings for that? Because you helped put away uh, El Chapo, but at the, the 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 same day, you know, they're having closing arguments. There's this huge, you know, seizure. Right. Well, so so you know, his statement about uh, drugs not going away once he ceases to exist. We didn't pursue him for that reason. We pursued him because he is a criminal that broke the law and affected the lives of millions and millions of people across America. It wasn't something where we anticipated for the drug trade to slow down with his absence, not at all. He was a criminal who was breaking the law, and that's that's how the DEA certainly recognized that. Now, he happened to be the biggest criminal who affected the United States more than any other particular individual in Mexico, mm-hmm. as far as the, the criminal element or organized crime in Mexico. Um, so I'd say his statement is is correct to the point that it's not gonna um, it's not gonna change, but it will change in some ways because the one thing that Chapo was was he was innovative. So he's the individual that came up with let's dig tunnels and mm-hmm. send mass amounts to of right. drugs through tunnels. He's a they called him rápido, which means fast, right? Mm-hmm. Because he would turn around the money. Uh, that was generated uh, in the United States back down to the Colombians really fast. So Mm -hmm. his logistics network was just different. It was a lot more um, fluid, a lot more flexible. Um, So he was an innovative drug trafficker. Um, And so when you say, okay, will things change? They've certainly changed to that degree. Now, you don't have the same type of person that, um, or individuals that, that, like he was. He understood... Um, how to move things from South America into Central America into Mexico and into the United States. And so um, as it relates to that, there is a change. Um, but you're talking about fentanyl, and fentanyl is, is an entire uh, another story because fentanyl is, is coming from, from China. Oh, yeah. And so 
that is a game changer for us, and we see that because it's synthetic. Mm-hmm. And so this, it, it just comes in, in different ways, but it's synthetic. It could be made in a laboratory, and it is being made by the, uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of kilos now. Right. Let, let me ask you really quick. Um, the you know I, I saw that the the hall the seizure it said had the potential for a hundred million overdoses. You know, and when I saw that, I was like, is that a typo? Because that's, if my math is correct, that's like one for almost every three Americans. Because I think there's like 320 million Americans. So, you know, this car, the Sinaloa cartel thrived, you know, as you pointed out, because of, um, largely because El Chapo was able to ship vast amounts of, of drugs. So have you guys been able to um, dismantle some of, some of the smuggling routes, some of the infrastructure that he took a lot of credit for. Sure. So um, there's a couple questions in that. The, right. the, the first thing is two milligrams of fentanyl is considered lethal. Mm-hmm. So think about one, one kilo is 500,000 dosage units at two milligrams. So it's enough to kill that many people within one kilo. So when you see, okay, 50 kilos of fentanyl, you're talking millions and millions of people wow. that could potentially die. Um, it, that's how powerful the drug is, and that's why uh, the Mexican cartels, in particular Sinaloa, started lacing their heroin with fentanyl to make it more potent. Mm-hmm. To answer the second part of that is, in the last six months alone, the DEA, working with our counterparts in Mexico, have taken down 10 different manufacturing and conversion fentanyl labs oh, wow. um, in Mexico. And so what does that mean? Well, we've taken down these labs that are full production, mm-hmm. meaning precursor chemicals all the way to full fentanyl as well as conversion labs whereas precursor chemicals will come in you add one more um, a chemical such as propionyl chloride into 4-APP and it becomes fentanyl and they're mixing that with heroin and then smuggling across the border so we have taken down 10 lab- labs in the last six months alone that's tremendous was 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 any of that partly because El Chapo is behind bars, or is that totally separate? So you got to go back to when the fentanyl really started taking a hold here in the United States, and that's 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Chapo was operating at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, we know that Sinaloa, the Sinaloans, um, the confederation or the organization that is Sinaloa Cartel, um, were among the first to lace their heroin with fentanyl. Uh, we first started seeing it. Uh, the first time we saw it was in Toluca, Mexico in 2006. We took down a lab that really didn't take hold, a fentanyl lab, really didn't take hold in throughout the United States markets. Next time we saw it was around 2011, 2012, when we started seeing the precursor chemicals coming in from China mm-hmm. and then smuggled um, into Southern California and then brought across the border into Mexico, converted to fentanyl mixed with heroin. That was Chapo's doing. And so when you talk about these successes that we've had in the last six months, it starts really from us getting an understanding of how how the international organizations, criminal networks, move in fentanyl, the methodologies, and starting to infiltrate them to the best of our ability to expose them and take them down. Okay, so let's talk about the opioid epidemic. It's caused tens of thousands of deaths um, each year. I saw another ridiculous number i think the record was 49,000 in 2017 you know that's a stunning number another statistic is a 
drug overdoses are now the uh, leading cause of death for Americans under 50. How does the DEA convey the urgency to the public without the public, you know, becoming desensitized? Because those numbers just sound crazy. Well, they're not crazy. I mean, it's, it is the reality that, that we're living in. What, what I'd say is this. In 2013, when we first saw that fentanyl was coming into the United States, we put out a national alert to all law enforcement agencies, government agencies, just and state and local agencies to make them aware that the uh, fentanyl was coming in, it's being smuggled and being mixed with heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took uh, took control of that, just getting the word out. Today, as you just read, it, uh, I think the public is aware, more and more aware of the fact that fentanyl is um, as deadly as it is. What they may not be aware of is the fact that fentanyl is being laced into other drugs not just heroin, but also methamphetamine and cocaine, and in some instances, even marijuana. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so fentanyl is the really the biggest problem in the opioid crisis, right? I, I saw that it, it killed Prince, and then it also killed uh, uh, Tom Petty. So let me just, you know, give a few basics from what I know, and then I'll ask you for following up and it's with insight. It's a synthetic drug. Uh, easily created in labs using chemicals, as you pointed out, is ma- manufactured in China, and it's it's even more potent uh, than heroin. Um, a few, a cu- couple of milligrams uh, is similar to a few grains of salt, and that can be deadly. I want you to talk about. I, I read that at the same time, it's, it's relatively dirt cheap to make. Uh, so is is the fact that it's inexpensive part of the reason it's such a deadly drug? Yes. So that's part of the reason why um, it took a hold in the United States is because it is cheap, right? So one kilo is as little as $4,000, as much as $10,000, but it could gen- generate millions of dollars. Wow. So if you have a Mexican cartel or organization that is growing um, poppy, fields or cultivating poppy fields in the mountains of Durango, Sinaloa, Chihuahua, mm-hmm. or even south down in Guerrero, um, that takes about three months to harvest, all right? So you're talking about the growth harvest, watching watching over these fields, protecting these fields, and then converting that from uh, heroin paste into uh, refined heroin is a process there about four months. Whereas organizations like the Sinaloa cartel could very easily just purchase their fentanyl from China, have it smuggled into Mexico, and then smuggled across the southwest border to destination cities such as New York mm-hmm. or New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and so the business model has evolved as well. So I read somewhere that a $3,000 investment in fentanyl will get you Several has a potential to get a, a drug dealer several hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's like Warren. I'm, I'm not sure if you're in the stocks, but that's like Warren Buffett's investment in Berkshire Hathaway like years ago. I mean, it doesn't. Is that an exaggeration? Three thousand dollars can get you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not an exaggeration. Wow. But it also can get your life in prison. Right. And, right. And so of behind that is the overdoses, the overdose deaths that are coming from that. Mm-hmm. And so now more and more federal prosecutors are charging these individuals that are knowingly distributing fentanyl to these groups that are causing people to die. 
And so the, that's what we have going on across the nation. Mm-hmm. The, the money that is generated from fentanyl is, is, de- is definitely lucrative. There's no question about it. But the danger behind it is, is more potent than anything we've seen. And, and you've given a lot of the blame to El Chapo because he helped popularize uh, lacing other drugs with fentanyl. So talk about that. I think it started around after 2010. Now all sorts of drugs are uh, fentanyl is being put in all sorts of drugs. Talk about his role and what's happening so, now. So you have to understand uh, Mexican culture, understand as far as the Mexican cartels go, right? So um, the Colombians, the DEA, um, Homeland Security, FBI, all of our federal partners working with the Colombian government. Uh, we've done a fairly decent job of pursuing some of the higher-up Colombian cartel organizations and have them prosecuted here in the United States. So the Colombians adapted. They've cha- they changed. They spread their, their cocaine markets throughout the world. And so the Mexicans were losing out of the cocaine hmm. trade because now you have Colombians that are in places like Spain and Netherlands and Germany and throughout Europe and some instances Western Africa as well, Um, Canada, another place. And so when this was happening, um, the Mexicans, they don't, um, coca is not a natural crop in Mexico, but poppy is. So they adapted, um, in many instances, the Colombian methodology of producing or manufacturing heroin. It just wasn't as strong as Colombian heroin. So Mm. they added fentanyl to it to make it stronger and to get the market Um, addicted or the people addicted here in the United States is one of the factors that's behind the opioid crisis. Okay, and they, but they are unable to calibrate the amount of fentanyl they put in other drugs, so it's killing their customer. That doesn't make any sense. If you're, you said they're businessmen. If you're a businessman, why would you sell something that's killing your customer base. Please explain that to me. Well, there's no quality control, I mean, in, in the drug trade, right? So it's, it, it, and think about what happens. Um, when it first started, when fentanyl first started happening here in the United States, people were dying in places like Staten Island, in New England, um, in the Bronx, in, in, in Brooklyn. And, and after uh, word got out that people were dying from the, this strong, they called it China White on the street. Uh, people were dying from it. Other users were coming to try that same drug. Hmm. And so because it was so powerful, um, and, and so it attracted more and more people. When you talk about from a business perspective that, that the Mexican cartels were killing off their, um, their customer base, um, yes, they, they were. They started adding other opioids as well, uh, like tramadol, to heroin to try to ease it back. Hmm. But it was already too late. Um, now more and more we have a user population that has built up tolerance to um, to fentanyl, and they're asking for just fentanyl. They've gone beyond, in some instances, beyond just heroin. Wow, wow! And uh, talk about you. You talked about China's role earlier. You know, some Chinese officials have said they're taking too much of the blame. That yes, it's mostly from there, but. They say that there are other countries that play a big role in directly having it come to the United States. Do you buy that? Are there any countries under the radar? We know that China is the main manufacturer, but are they, do they have a point there at all? Well, the first thing I would say is this. As far as the DEA is concerned, we do work with China. And we work many of our investigations alongside the uh, Chinese police mm-hmm. as well. 
Um, as far as manufacturing and where fentanyl is coming from, the vast majority of our investigations go back to China. Now, other countries playing a role, certainly. Yeah, Mexico is another country that plays a role. Um, when we talk about how the fentanyl is coming into the United States, there's really two methodologies. One is through express mail service providers directly from China, right? Meaning like the FedExes, the DHLs, the UPS, and even our own postal, although that has subsided somewhat. Mm -hmm. And the other is through the Southwest border. Um, the Chinese instituted regulation on all variations, uh, fentanyl, fentanyl analogs, as of May 1 this year. Our hope is that we, we will see a drop of fentanyl coming into the United States, at least by way of express mail service providers. The other thing that happened is we started working a lot more closer to our partners and sharing a lot more information to pursuing some of these Chinese chemical companies and chemists that are knowingly sending the deadly substance to the United States. But will that stop the, the flow in directly into Mexico? Uh, that's another challenge for us. Now, the, the Trump administration you know, press China to crack down, and China has cr promised to crack down. You're saying you're working with them. Have you seen any changes since they've promised to crack down? Any yes. significant changes? So, so the changes right now are um, through the airports. So we do not, we're not seizing the fentanyl like we once did coming into JFK directly from China in the small packages like we once did. And so that's a good sign, um, but it's too early. The metrics aren't really there for us to determine if, uh, if that's just kind of uh, an anomaly or something that's sustainable. And so we're sti it's still out. Uh, it has not slowed down uh, as far as coming across the border yet. Um, but if we can control one way, then we can put a lot more resor resources towards the other way. And now with the mobile phone, uh, talk about the role that the mobile phone has given users to get drugs. You mentioned technology earlier to get drugs that they couldn't, uh, you know, use get in th that way. Say twenty years ago. What talk about the role sure, of the mobile sure. phone? So technology um, has really made the world a lot smaller, and it's nothing that that people don't already know. Globalization, but that also has enabled criminal organizations to reach out across the world and connect to criminal groups throughout the world. And one space would be in the dark web. Mm -hmm. Dark dark web markets um, such as Alpha Bay or Silk Road or Dream or Wall Street or Nightmare. These are dark web spaces where criminals throughout the world are um, buying and selling uh, narcotics. But it's not only narcotics, but really every illicit item you could find in a dark web space. And you can order it up and have it shipped to your doorstep. We also see the user population going into the same space to get their drugs and have it shipped to their doorstep. So no longer do they have to go down a, a dark alley and meet with a drug dealer. They can go right to the Internet and have their drugs shipped to, uh, to their house. Mm -hmm. um, so it, technology has changed. The other thing that's happened is drug traffickers no longer need to um, necessarily go to Mexico or Colombia or any other place to meet up with a source of supply. Mm. Um, they can just go online. And in many instances, it's open internet, um, and then from there they'll go to the dark, dark web to expand their networks. But we're certainly in that space as well. Okay. So the opioid epidemic occurred in three waves. The first wave, early 90s, overdoses triggered by an increase in pain medication, especially OxyContin. The second wave, 2010, after a crackdown in prescription abuse, led to a spike in heroin deaths. 
the third wave, 2003, the unprecedented deaths related to fentanyl. I wanted to know what, is there a current, the latest iteration? Is there another trend now that the, that's not getting a lot of attention in the media? The, well, there is a trend. It's the, 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 the biggest trend right now that's taking place is meth production, methamphetamine production. Um, two things that are happening globally. One is cocaine production in the Andean region of South America is through the roof. Um, but now cocaine is more global uh, drug of choice um, throughout the world. Second thing is meth, uh, methamphetamine production is through the roof. In the last three years alone, the DEA working with our Mexican partners, we have taken down over 300 laboratories in northern Mexico working with our Mexican uh, counterparts, identified, taken them down. Um, and that's hundreds of tons of methamphetamine that's destined for the United States. Now, methamphetamine is not necessarily a, it doesn't necessarily have a market here in New York City. Mm -hmm. We do seize it um, from time to time, but it certainly is a market throughout middle America. Um, no question about that. Uh, Jersey does have a, a market for methamphetamine, and so does uh, pockets throughout Pennsylvania. Northern New York does have a uh, meth market as well. But that trend that we're talking about is, is, he is headed in that direction. Okay. And what about the uh, counterfeit uh, prescriptions being laced with fentanyl? How, how long has that uh, been going on? Specifically, the counterfeit prescriptions. I I'm curious because I, I think that's, that's how Prince died. I think he took a fake Vicodin and he uh, thought it, it was a real Vicodin, and the authorities said they didn't think that he uh, knew that it was fentanyl. So talk about that. So you, you, what you're talking about, is it, it circles back to what we just said about the dark web space. So a lot more of the criminal networks in the dark web space initially were really um, purchasing or getting their hands on diverted pharmaceuticals such, such as OxyContin. Um, from there is when they start, we started seeing these same organizations getting their hands on fentanyl and uh, putting them in or transforming, changing them into pill form and selling them as if they were oxycodone 30s mm. um, to the same individuals. Um, and so that convergence really took place alongside the technology and towards these criminal groups going on to the dark web space to do that. So today we see a lot more organizations that sell fentanyl in pill form. Um, so that pharmaceutical black market mm -hmm. and that illicit narcotics markets have converged in some places throughout the United States, certainly in the Northeast. When users buy, get those counterfeit pills, do, don't they know that there's a good chance there's fentanyl in it? No, not, not, not really. They think, yeah. okay, well, it's pills, looks, in some instances, it looks just like an oxycodone. Mm -hmm. 30 would be. I mean, the color, the, st the stamp, everything that you would imagine um, it would look like it looks just like a pill. And so they're taking it thinking that it is from a pharmaceutical company, not knowing that it is an illicit market or a network that had pressed that into a pill form, added the dye to it, and is selling it um, in a dark web space. Again, there's no quality control. There's no chemist that's saying, hey, this is this much fentanyl in this pill. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the overdoses are coming from. Okay, and then there's an opioid that's, more powerful than even fentanyl, which is, I heard, was used as an elephant tranquilizer, car fentanyl, and now, you know, uh, drug dealers are lacing drugs with 
that. That's just great. Talk about sure. that. Sure. Well, if you're talking about, uh, listen, in our laboratory, we've seized over over 50 fentanyl-fentanyl analogs, including carfentanyl. I mean, it, it's really you change a molecular compound here or there, and it's still fentanyl. It's still a part of that group of fentanyl. And so that's what the Chinese were, the Chinese chemical companies were originally doing. We would regulate a specific um, variation of fentanyl, and the Chinese would regulate it, and then the chemists would just change one compound, and it becomes a new version of fentanyl or a fentanyl analog. Um, and so carfentanyl, yes, elephant tranquilizer, we were seeing that throughout the United States. We don't see it to the degree that we once did. Um, again, that goes back to China regulating um, that version of, of fentanyl. Now, the hope is that by regulating all the fentanyl analogs by class, that it will change what's going on across America. It's mm -hmm. too t it, it is still too early to determine whether that's going to have effect or not. Okay. But yes, there we have seen very powerful um, fentanyl analogs across the United States. And it's the same thing that users don't know that they're getting an elephant tranquilizer in there. It's right. Well, I mean, think about it. Um, you know, if you're a user, you're not you're not testing it. You're you're just you're looking to get high, and that's what it is. And so, if a drug dealer is, if other people have survived and got through it, they want a taste of it too. And the more powerful, the more sustainable the high is, the more they're going to be attracted to it. Okay. How did the Mexican cartels uh, respond to the legalization of marijuana in, in seven states uh, in America? You know, obviously that's not good news. It's, how did they respond to less demand of their marijuana? Th that's not necessarily true. When you talk about less demand of their oh, marijuana, okay. there is no less demand of their marijuana. Each week I read uh, intelligence reports that come across my desk. And marijuana seizures are, are still still happening by hundreds, thousands of, uh, of, of, of pounds all the time, uh, all across our southwest border. It hasn't slowed down the Mexican cartels from pushing marijuana to the United States, hmm. not one bit. Wow, that's interesting. In fact, the black market is still, you know, all throughout the United States of uh, Mexican marijuana. Hmm, that's interesting, because I thought the assumption for the legalization of marijuana would make it less of a demand from why would you seek illegal marijuana if you could just buy it here that's no that, well that's the that's just the, it's just not factual um, mm -hmm. Mexican cartels still grow marijuana still smuggle across the border and still are you know feeding that black market uh, even behind the state legalization programs okay. all throughout the United States and, yeah. and, and how, how has the DEA adjusted to I, I, I'm assuming it's adds a complexity because now you know this drug used to be illegal across the board now it's legal in seven states and, and possibly growing so how do you guys adjust to that how do you you have to you have to understand how dea operates right so our priority right now no question about it, is, is opioids opioid crisis what's going on across america because simply that's what is killing people right so we put a lot of resources there but Mexican organizations are polydrug. In other words, they're not just moving um, heroin or fentanyl or cocaine or meth. They're also moving meth, uh, marijuana as well. So all different drugs. The Sinaloa cartel is engaged in all different drugs. Mm -hmm. So when the DEA is pursuing these organizations, we're pursuing them as that. 
it's really a national security issue for us. You have these foreign organizations that have infiltrated the U.S. by way of the drug trade. And so when we go after them, we're going after them for, you name it, cocaine, marijuana, her uh, heroin, fentanyl, um, whatever they're engaged in. And so the strategy really has, has not changed as far as, hey, marijuana legalization throughout the states is going to change how DEA operates, because that's not what is, uh, the Mexican cartels haven't changed. They continue to grow it. They continue to smuggle across the border. Um, in many cases, they are feeding that black market uh, demand in places like Colorado. Mm. So uh, let's say in terms of th this conversation, legal state marijuana is going through the, the front door, and behind it, the black market marijuana comes in. Mm. And so we see it all the time. Okay. All right. Americans spend an estimate of over $100 billion a year in illegal drugs. You know, that's by far more than any other country. China, you know, the Ch Ch Chinese citizens, for some reason, they don't go crazy about the fentanyl in their backyard. So it seems like in a lot of ways the root cause of, of is is the demand. So what what does the... I think the DEA is known more for, you know, trying to combat, at least publicly, the uh, supply. What do you guys do about trying to decrease the demand of, of drugs? So the first thing I'd say, Nanyu, is DEA is a law enforcement organization. So that's, that's the first thing you need to recognize. There are other um, agencies throughout the United States that are more towards the demand reduction. <laughs> we certainly participate. We certainly believe in treatment, prevention, education. I think it's important um, that we, we collaborate throughout the United States, not only federally, but throughout the state and, and local agencies as well, to bring down the demand for drugs. Um, that is important. But it's like burning a candle at just one end. You have to burn the candle at both ends. So mm -hmm. you have to, you can't just go and just treat, 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 or educate and expect that demand's gonna drop. You have to pursue these organizations that are also shipping tons and tons of illicit narcotics into our country, trying to get the population addicted um, to make money. And so, so I think that really the solution is to attack it at both sides and work with not only federal agencies, but private sector to do that. And do you guys have a, a specific plan? or so, so we do. We have what's known as DEA 360 that is in several cities throughout the United States, which is working with the local community, education, health agencies, um, to first make the, the, the citizens or make the Americans aware of what's going on in their communities, but also come in with a law enforcement um, enforcement operation to pursue some of the biggest organizations that are affecting that, uh, that particular city. Mm -hmm. And so it, it goes back to what I said. It's really burning candle at both ends, trying to pursue, yes, supply as well as the demand. But even when you talk about supply, um, for many, many decades, the DEA has been pursuing those organizations that are up front and in our face, mm -hmm. meaning the Colombian cartels, the Mexican cartels. But you think about drugs and what's going on, Who's really behind a lot of that are Chinese organized crime as well. Mm -hmm. And so today we see um, Chinese groups that are worked or have linked up directly with Mexican organizations to move fentanyl, to bring in precursor chemicals for meth production, such as methylamine and monomethylamine, pseudoephedra. Um, and they've been there for many, many decades, but they operate differently. And so 
we believe that, okay, if you work closer with China, case in point with fentanyl, and we try to classify some of these, these illicit narcotics, it would certainly change how drugs come into Mexico or, or the Western Hemisphere and then change how it comes into the United States. So I think you can't just be one-dimensional. You have to come at it from asymmetric solution. Right. What's your response, and it seems like this is increasingly the public sentiment, but what's your response to uh, when you hear a remark like the, the war on drug is a failure, you know, um, I'm sure that frustrates you. So what, well, what do you respond uh, when you hear that, when well, people say that, you know, they and they point out the incarceration, the um, corruption, uh, and they say, you know, the crime just goes on. Why don't we just, you know, so what's your response to that? So, so the response is, you know, when you talk about the war on drug, it was a political campaign from 1971. And so I don't know of any DEA agents today that talk about the, a war on drugs. What we, what we do is we um, protect the United States, really from foreign hostile um, criminal organizations um, that are trying to sell illicit narcotics and that are killing off our citizens. And so when you, when you think about what our day-to-day job is, it really comes down to saving lives. And, and it's a federal crime. And it's a federal crime for a reason. So you, you already spoke about the, the numbers of people that are, that are dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, more people are dying each year from overdoses than from car wrecks, right. from gunshots. And so uh, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to pursue these organizations. The other thing I'd say about as far as the drug war, the DEA has less than 1% of our arrests are related to marijuana. And even then, they're poly groups. So we certainly don't believe in let's arrest the user population. Mm-hmm. That's not where we invest our, our time and resources. Mm-hmm. A lot of our resources go towards these international groups that affect America. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about the Sinaloa cartel. Um, Ismail Zambada, a.k.a. El Mayo, his name kept coming up during the trial. Um, he was El Chapo's most trusted ally for, I think, you know, decades, and they worked hand-in-hand. So what's the main difference between El Mayo and El Chapo? See, when you talk about El Chapo and Mayo, you, you're talking about many different things, right? So it's, it's yes, they were part, partners in many instances in, in bringing narcotics into the United States, but they also had their own organization. Mayo's the founding father of the Sinaloa cartel. He's been around just as long, if not longer, than, than, than Chapo was. Um, but the DEA does pursue Mile to the degree that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no question about it. Uh, we have worked time and time with the Mexican government to pursue him as well. In fact, when we were going after El Chapo in 2014, we were also going after a mile. Right. Right. And, yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you about that. I think it was 2014. You guys surveilled a ranch in Mexico uh, and and then with the uh, Mexican Marines. And then when, when they, you know, kind of went in there he kind of like disappeared so it's like this guy how has he been able he's how's he been able to avoid jail for 30 years being a prominent drug trafficker well, well let me say this when we were pursuing um el mayo el mayo was smart enough to know to run <laughs> simple as that he was smart enough to know um he had um people all throughout city of Culiacan looking out for him 
And um, as soon as he got word that um, things were happening and, and the military was moving into Kulitan, he ran for the hills. Mm-hmm. And he knew to do that. Uh, Chapo didn't. He stayed put. Um, and, and Chapo did it because he was confident in his system that he built of tunnels, escapes. And because of that, um, you know, we almost caught him very early on in the pursuit for Chapo. Whereas Mayo ran up to the mountains which makes it a little bit more challenging for for uh, Mexican Marines to pursue. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the difference. But make no mistake about it, um, Mayo's on the radar. He is certainly a wanted man as well, um, uh, no doubt about it. And so he's managed to escape. Um, but you got to understand how we did the operation and how we put it together to go after El Chapo. It really was the first of its kind. It really was a model that um, that we established of sharing information um, throughout all the, the U.S. agencies as well as Mexican agencies. It was really collaborative. Um, it did. It hasn't happened like that prior to that. There's been instances and, and successes here and there but not to the level, certainly, where you had 22 different agencies sharing information for a common goal. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, with El Chapo in jail, prosecutors said the two of his older sons, Ivan Guzman and Jesus Guzman, obtained much of his power. And I saw the DEA place Jesus Guzman on its most wanted list with a, a $5 million reward. Does that designation kind of reflect his stature in the Sinaloa cartel? Well, I think it does, right? Because he is, he's, the boys have risen on Chapitos. No, there's no question about it. They've risen to the ranks because Chapo's no longer there. So they are covering down on his interest as well as Chapo's um, brother and other members of, of, the, uh, of his side of the Sinaloa cartel. But certainly Ivan Jesus have stepped up. Okay. And during the trial, I I found it fascinating that, you know, Vicente Zambada, um, El Mayo's uh, son, gave so much damaging, um, you know, testimony against El Chapo. And then also El Mayo's uh, brother, who was a a longtime accountant, gave uh, damaging um, testimony against El Chapo. So doesn't that... Uh, negatively, permanently affect the relationship uh, between El Mayo and and, uh, El Chapo's family? You know, it's interesting. I mean, does it? Perhaps, or or maybe not, right? Because when it's all said and done, Vicente and Ray Zambada, they were arrested, they were apprehended, arrested, and extradited. So when it's all said and done, did did Chapo expect them to keep their mouths quiet? And for what purpose? Um, you know, at that point, it's kind of like understood that they, they're in U.S. custody. Um, um, they're going to cooperate. It's one of the interesting things that I found at the trial was really the defense. There wasn't, there really was no, not much of defense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was a mountain of evidence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a historical perspective, you had Zimbabwe really painting a picture of everything that really what the Sinaloa cartel was built on going back decades and decades and then Vincente bringing it up to current times Mm -hmm. um it was it was very damaging but I don't think that um the boys could really hold anything against Miles Zambada for what his brother and his son has done Mm. um for, for what to what end for what purpose 
You see what I'm saying? I mean, they still live. Um, they're they're all in Kulikan. They're still part of a similar group. Mm-hmm. Um, they still work together. Right, to and that's day. why I was surprised that they actually still work it, together. It goes back because it's his son and his brother testifying against, you know, their the the their, their dad. No, it still goes back to. It still goes back. You got to understand that that culture first of all. It still goes back to this was part of the risk. This was part of the game. This mm. was part of, of, you know, of of what they knew uh, they were involved in, and so it's no different. Um, do I think Chapo was was kind of shocked to hear Ray Zamata speak to in depth everything right. that he knew, right. perhaps, mm-hmm. but the reality it shouldn't shock him too much. Hmm. <laughs> he knew what was going on. He was there. Hmm. Right. 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 And what about the jockeying for power? Because I know after um, El Chapo got arrested, I believe there was an assassination attempt uh, with a couple of his brothers. Then they got kidnapped later on under mysterious circumstances and then released. And then some armed men invaded El Chapo's hometown, ransacked his mother's uh, mansion and, and killed some neighbors. So is that situation fluid or what's what's going on there? So you're talking about several different things there, within that, with, right within that question. Um, you know, as soon as Chapo was extradited out of the country, um, it changes things in Sinaloa, right? So the boys stepped up. Um, there were there, there certainly was infighting. There's no doubt, no doubt about it. But it settled down, and the boys were kidnapped. When I say the boys, Chapitos, the, the, the Chapo sons. Mm-hmm. In, in Guadalajara, they were released um, because of Mayo. And mm-hmm. so when you think about how does that come about, that's mm-hmm. that long-term Sinaloa relationship wow. that goes back many, many decades. Okay, so Mayo actually played a role yeah. in their release. And well, certainly he does. Wow. But there's two major cartels in Mexico. Right. One is the Sinaloa cartel. The mm-hmm. other is Cartel New Generation, mm-hmm. based in Guadalajara, Jalisco, right. Nemesio Cervantes, mm-hmm. El Mencho. And that was actually my next question. So, yeah. Right. And, 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 but, you, you know, most people don't know this. There are many different cartels, right? There's, there's many different cartels. There's literally, you know, thousands of gangs that are falling underneath the cartel's umbrella. Mm-hmm. But there's only a certain amount of real bosses, heads of these organizations in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And they all know each other. And to a degree, they've all worked with each other at one point or another. Um, and it comes down to um, the routes into the United States. When people talk about the drug war, the real war on drugs, it's amongst the cartels for the routes into the United States. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what that is. Um, n- no question about it. Uh, it's so lucrative for them. And that's, mm-hmm. where, that's where the fight really is. Okay, so the, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, um, mm-hmm. I think it was founded in 2000, around 2010 by uh, Nemesio Cervantes, nicknamed El Mencho. Um, some pundits have said that they are, 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 have, are threatening the power of the Sinaloa Cartel. Is that accurate? Yes. Wow. Yes, and the reason why is because... Um, they're very organized. Uh, they've expanded um, into over 20 states throughout Mexico, and they have a global footprint. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is um, CJNG, 
um, new generation controls many of the ports, mm -hmm. the seaports. Um, and so with that means that um, they were able to expand their global footprint throughout the world as far as methamphetamine and cocaine that would come up to that or organization. They also started taking more and more control of Guerrero or the organizations that are producing heroin down in the state of Guerrero. Mm -hmm. um, also Baja, California, which is the main port of entry into the United States, which is Tijuana and San Diego. And so we see now CJNG um, and Sinaloa really, really controlling Baja, California. Um, they have moved. They they have stepped up. I'm talking about CJNG. Right. And while the vast majority of markets in the United States are still controlled by Sinaloans, um, we do see that CJNG is, is certainly making headway throughout the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but globally, um, while the Sinaloa cartel is concentrated on the U.S. CJNG, we saw cocaine from them in places like Australia, in places like um, Spain and Dutch Netherlands and the U.K. and China mm -hmm. um, and Canada, uh, they really expanded their global footprint. Right. And, and they're, they're very well organized. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other thing that differentiates them. And they, they used to be, I believe, an armed wing of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, have they decided to kind of coexist, or are they mortal enemies that are going to just fight each other until one dominates? No, they're, they're really... They're, it, it all depends, right? And so, if uh, right now they're kind of sub, they're, they're working um, in some instances jointly, hmm. um, and others no. It all depends on the plaza and who controls the plaza, and if there's a if there's a change. Right now, they're coexisting. Um, when we see a lot of the other kind of uh, violence or the issues that take place, um, it. As they expand south into Guerrero, there are many different organizations in the state of Guerrero that are remnants from other organizations like La Familia, um, Guerreros Unidos, and other, other uh, organizations. It's a fertile area for poppy cultivation. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's one of those uh, states that the Mexican government is very concerned with, Guerrero. But we now more and more see CJNG um, taking over a lot of that, con controlling a lot more of the drugs coming out of Guerrero. Um, and being pushed into the United States. Mm. So it's well known that uh, El Chapo is shorty, but just I'm just curious, what does El Mencho mean in English? Is it? I have no yeah. idea. Yeah, it's just I've his, never his seen, nickname. Yeah, yeah, I've never. I I've, I was like, does it mean menace or you know? I was just. You, you got me. That, on you. That's just, yeah. that's funny. So when you joined uh, the hunt for El Chapo in in 2012, he had been on the run for you know almost a decade. Just talk about how you got up to speed before you could oversee such a complex operation. Sure. So. Um, I spent 15 years in the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force. Mm -hmm. And here in New York, the Sinaloa Cartel had the vast majority of distribution networks um, here in the city. So for many, many years, as we conducted or I conducted my, my investigations within my group, um, we would get uh, connections back to Sinaloa. So, so when you talk about me arriving down in the Special Operations Division 2012, we were, already knew about El Chapo, already knew um, about his global reach, already knew many of the individuals that were around him. And you're talking about many, many years of conducting investigations that have led to that point. In 2012, I knew that 
what needed to happen because I didn't have, uh, it wasn't like I had all the answers or, I, you know, I would be able to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that we needed a coalition of people and like-minded people that were willing to share information and pursue El Chapo collectively. Um, and that's that was my my goal when I got there was to do try to build that uh, build that network of uh, law enforcement agencies and, and not only you know here in the United States but also in Mexico. Okay, it sounds like after a while you got obsessed trying to recapture him. So I, I'm sure you could give me like one humor story relating to maybe your wife. Like, dude, listen, you know, oh yeah, how did it affect your personal life? Well, Just well. I'm that type of person anyway. For me personally, if, um, you know, the best way to describe me as an investigator is I, it, for me, being an, an agent was never a job. It was, it, it is my passion. This is like a hobby to me. Like I, I will, I, you know, investigating is, is something that, that I enjoy. And when it came down to going after El Chapo, um, the first thing I would, I would tell you this is it wasn't just it wasn't just me that was focused in on this. You had a group. That, there was a core group of people that were really instrumental in putting putting it things together, and then there were many layers of this group that grew out to literally hundreds of people that participated. Mm-hmm. And so, when you talk about how did this come about, yeah, I, I think we all were obsessed. We all said, um, and as time went on, we got more and more obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. Me in particular, I remember when I first got to SOD. I pulled every report I can get my hands on that connected to to Chapo, mm-hmm. and I read I just read read the volumes of different reports on Chapo just to try to take in all the information that I was unaware of, mm-hmm. because in New York as an agent you're focused in on what's going on here in the city, uh. right? So you're focused in hey this crew here that crew there, all throughout the city. Yes, you get ties back to. Arizona and California and back into Mexico, but you're not so much focused on it as much. But now, leaving New York and going to our special ops division allowed me to focus in more on Mexico. Mm-hmm. And who's doing what? Who are the log- logistics people? Who are the pilots? Who are the smugglers? Who are the growers? Who are all these, this huge network of people and what their roles are and try to paint that strategic picture? And, and, and you know, the one thing I always say is, you know, it certainly wasn't wasn't me. It was a group. It was, mm-hmm. yes, I was in this group of people that were sharing information and willingly giving up ideas and trying to expand on them, develop them. And that's really the win in the capture of Chapel from, from how I see it. Is prior to that, it just didn't happen to the degree that it that it did. What did your wife think about this obsession? Well, my wife. I was waiting yeah, for. So my my wife. <laughs> or wife. But my wife is used to that. To be oh, honest okay. with you, you know, like it's not You're a lucky man. Yeah. So so you know, uh, my wife's a saint. <laughs> is is probably the best way to put it because uh, she's seen me obsessed with investigations for you know over twenty years now. Wow. Oh. Now I will say this. There's been no other case for me like the pursuit of El Chapo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a funny story uh, is is this. After we caught El Chapo in uh, 2014 and he escaped in July of 2015, um, I remember this. My, my wife one morning just kept on nudging me to get up, and it was like 5.30 in the morning. I didn't want to get up. She said, um, El Chapo escaped. 
and I thought I was dreaming. <laughs> that, which is, which, I really thought it was a dream, and I didn't, I didn't hear it. And then she kept on hitting me and telling me to get up. How did, and she, how did she know? She knew because my phone was going off. Uh huh. Um, it kept on vibrating, and also uh, something came on on the news or or the radio. She heard it, mm-hmm. and so she woke me up to tell me. And it was just, you know, I thought I was dreaming. So I went from deep sleep to like. Uh, you know, I'm awake, and, and mm. now it's kind of like reality set in. Chapo escaped out of prison after we put so much effort towards apprehending him prior to that. Right, and, you know, the way he escaped was just, um, you know, on one hand, it's something from a, a James Bond movie, a tunnel connected to his uh, cell. Uh, but, on, but on the other, and that was ingenious and brilliant, but on the other hand, it was almost comical because they said the two guards who were supposed to be watching the surveillance were playing solitaire. And that, uh, you know, um, inmates complained about loud digging and they were ignored. And then El Chapo said, you know, after he was captured, they actually went, his diggers actually went to the wrong cell first and then they had to adjust. So how deflating was that, you know, finding out and then hearing the details, knowing that this guy had help inside? How deflating was that? So, you know, you got to think about, um, so that was July 11, 2015, when he escaped, right? So mm-hmm. keep in mind, 2012, September 2012 is when we're starting to put this team together to pursue El Mayo and, and El Chapo. And so we ca- capture him, um, I mean, the Mexican Marines capture him in, um, in, in 2014. And so when he escaped, it, it, it was it was surreal. It was kind of like it was deflating. It, it was um, we were at a loss because y- you know we remembered what it was like when we captured him. Mm-hmm. It was you go from this high to this is you know, on top of the world to like wow this guy actually walked out of you know a maximum security prison right. outside of Mexico City and he and he built a mile long tunnel to do it, uh-huh. which. Just think about the engineering feat that right. was just to just to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but something quickly happened, right? So um, I, I think about within three days of the escape is, is when we kind of all said, we're not going to leave this. Mm-hmm. This is not the end, end of this story. And so um, I remember getting the team back together in Special Ops Division and bringing in some of the key stakeholders and people that really dedicated their lives to capturing them the first time mm-hmm. and and getting us in the room again to figure out well what's the game plan mm-hmm. to pursue them again right. um so it was it was you know we, we we were depressed for a few days but we didn't stay there right. uh we didn't we certainly didn't stay down the the other thing we knew based on the first capture was we learned a lot we learned um you know, how he operated, who he was, who was around him, why he did certain things. We really learned a lot of his behaviors, mm-hmm. um, his pattern of life, if you will. And so in doing so, we felt confident that we can, we can get back there. Mm-hmm. One tantalizing uh, piece of uh, information that came out during the trial was that he actually... Uh, tr- plotted to be transferred back to Altiplano, which he had escaped for, from, and he had bribed a, a, a national um, jail official in Mexico. He had paid a $2 million bribe, but then he was suddenly moved from El Altiplano, this maximum 
uh, you know, security jail to uh, see you, Dad, uh, across from, I think, the border of El Paso at the last minute. Now, I wanted to know, did you guys have much to do with that? Because it seemed like the Mexican government was on to the fact that he might be actually trying to escape a third time. So what, what happened there? See, that particular ins- what happened there was th- that was all Mexico. Okay. That was all the Mexican government that said, you know, he already escaped twice, mm-hmm. right? So it, it was, um, there was no way they were going to let him escape again. And that was really a push from the Mexican government themselves. Mm-hmm. It wasn't DEA. Okay. Um, do we have concerns? Yes. Right. We did have concerns. Because it was odd that they are moving him from a maximum security jail to, you know, a less. So it just showed you the level of corruption. And I still want you to um, tell me, like, did you feel like you were also, after the, he escaped the second time, did you feel like you were also fighting institutional powers? What was going through your head knowing that he had inside help and not just a couple of guys at the bottom, inside help at the highest levels? Well, you know, the funny thing is when he was placing out the Plano, we didn't think, we we really didn't consider the fact that he could possibly escape from there. We're thinking, oh, this is the securest um, prison that that the Mexican uh, Mexican government has. Uh, There's no way he's going to get out of that. Um, we really didn't think about that. After he escaped, um, everything's just everything changed, right? He escaped. We caught him. Once we got him back, everyone was very aware that this guy could attempt to do it again. Mm-hmm. And and th- like I said, the push did not come from the A. The push came from within the Mexican government. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I can't tell you. I just don't know the answers of why they moved him from. Uh, Mexico City up mm-hmm. towards uh, Ciudad Juarez. I, right. I, I don't know that particular reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't give you that. If I had to be able to tell you, it, mm-hmm. it, it could possibly, you're taking him out of his territory that he controls, mm-hmm. taking him out of his element, mm-hmm. and putting him in a place where he has very little control. Right. It was just ironic because they said it's not, it's less secure than, you know, Altiplano is like their top. So that that's what I found interesting. Now, you know, the, the hunt for El Chapo has been described as like a model for interagency cooperation. And you kind of touched on that before the FBI, the DA, Homeland Security, etc. Usually there's institutional barriers involving turf and credit. So what was different this time? How was how are all the agencies able to finally like work together? I think what happened was um, it's the, the goal was so far-reaching. If you think about it, right, okay, we're going to go pursue. You know, when we were going after El Chapo, we weren't only going after El Chapo. We were literally going after El Mayo. We were going after um, Rafael Carl Quintero. Whoever we can find, we were going to grab, but we were looking for the heads of the Sinaloa cartel. Mm-hmm. And so that's so far out there that um, I think um, the various agents and agencies said, okay, yeah, we'll give it a shot. Mm. And, and, and so at first it was kind of like, okay, great, we're going to put together another um, task force to pursue uh, the heads of the Sinaloa cartel. We'll see where it goes. I think the difference this time around was we actually shared all our information. So if you think about how an investigation comes about, how you develop an investigation, 
It's almost like a puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. You have DEA has a piece, HSI, FBI has a piece, you know, um, uh, marshals have a piece, uh, Marines have a piece, PGR, all these different pieces that when you put it, start putting these pieces together and sharing information, you start seeing a picture. Mm-hmm. And the picture is really the who's who that are around in his organization. Who does what? It goes back to what I said about who's the logistics person, who's his uh, bodyguard, who's his secretary, who's his cook, um, who's that? Who's the guy that does errands, who safeguards the warehouses. So all these, all this information now is starting to come into sight as we're sharing information. Okay. Talk really quickly about the role of the Mexican, um, the Mexican uh, Marines. You know they. They've been described as secretive and incorruptible, and uh, they've been compared to the Navy SEALs who they train with on occasion. They essentially caught El Chapo or played a key role both times, right? So just talk about the importance of their role. So uh, Mexican Marines, um, certainly we consider them um, national heroes for Mexico. Um, they are, yes, they have put their lives on the line time and time again. Certainly leadership of the Marines that pursued El Chapo. The first time around when we caught El Chapo, um, it was very much a joint venture, okay? The second time um, in Los Mochis, the Marines took more of a lead on that. And when I say more of a lead, they were very instrumental, very, very focused, um, even more so than than all of us, um, they were determined. Um, they came up with a strategy that was absolutely brilliant. They flushed out Chapo. They forced Chapo from the mountains of Durango um, in Sinaloa to run down to Los Mochis, and it was the Marines that did that. It was their idea to flush him out. Um, they knew where he was going to be, um, and they. It, 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 there's no way that the DEA, FBI. HSI, all the agencies, the marshals that were there, CBP, that we would have caught in El Chapo if it wasn't for the Marines mm-hmm. and their commitment, dedication, and, and, and really undying pursuit. They did not quit. They were tenacious um, from the very beginning. Once they committed, they were all in. What was the reaction? I, I believe you were in the D.C. area uh, when he was caught. Talk about the moment he was caught, when you found out, you know, and your people found out, what was, how, how did it feel? So the second time you're talking yeah, about, in right. two, the January, second time. January, January 2016. 2016. When, uh, first of all, let me say this to you. When we, we after Chapo escaped um, in July of 2015, it took us about three weeks to zero back in on him. So, um, we got that, that, when I say we, you know, we, all those different agencies, we got pretty good at zeroing in on him at that point. Um, capturing him was the next, the next big, big thing. We knew where he was or where he was going to go. So we knew he was going to drop down to Los Mochis, Mexico, because we already knew, we already had the location. And the Marines were watching it for two months, waiting for him to come down. And so what we didn't know uh, was that um, there was going to be another escape hatch, right? <laughs> right? And so, uh, well, let me say this. We did know there was going to be another escape hatch. What we didn't know was that the tunnel 
um, that uh, where the exit was for the escape route from this, the, this safe house of, of his was going to be flooded with water and sewage. And so the Marines um, already knew about the, the, the escape hatch. They okay. knew about the sewage system. But when they did the uh, um, counter-surveillance on that particular tunnel, it was dry. And so when Chapo and Cholo Ivan has, uh, came out of it, they went into the sewage, and it was flooded, so the Marines couldn't get down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was still close. Even at that point, Chapo almost escaped. Right. It was right, very, right. very close to him getting out. Yeah, and, you know, two things I found interesting was uh, one was funny. They, they carjacked him and you know, his, his assassin, um, Cholo, carjacked. I think a Volkswagen and it, the transmission like blew and fills with smoke. I mean, if if that doesn't happen, is there a chance that these guys sure, get away? Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know that that was the, well. The Mexican Marines really had Los Mochis surrounded, right? So it could have it, 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 it all depends. Is probably the best answer. It didn't happen. Could he have gotten away? Yeah, if the car. If they got into the car, they carjacked the car, and it worked fine, and they were able to take off and go from there, hmm. we wouldn't have had them. Hmm. And then the other thing I found interesting, that there was a, a, a huge firefight between the Marines and El Chapo's um, men preceding you know, the carjackings, and five of El Chapo's men uh, died. El Chapo and his assassin didn't fire a shot. Didn't that surprise you? No, it didn't, because the whole point of them, you know, engaging in the firefight was to give Chapo time to escape. Uh, you know, these people are lifelong security people for the Sinaloa cartel, so right. they. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm it, talking about El Chapo yeah. and his assassin not not giving up, no, no resistance. They got to move, and so if you think about them, okay, the Marines hit the door. You know, the Marines hit the door or hit the front door to this safe house, mm-hmm. as soon as that happened, El Chapo's goal is not to fight him. His goal is to, to escape. Right. He knows that the, his hideout has been uh, you know, located and they're pursuing him. And so the, the, um, the security detail for Chapo engaged in a firefight mm-hmm. um, and gave him enough time to actually make it outside of the, uh, the sewage system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it didn't surprise me one bit. I, I could tell you this, though. The capture of Cholo Ivan was a big win for the Marines mm. because he's such a well-known assassin in the state of Sinaloa that they didn't expect him to be there. Mm. So they where, were, where is he now? Well, he's down. He's still in prison down there. Okay. Yeah. In Altiplano? I don't know if he's in Altiplano or not. I got you. Yeah. And then so while on the run, um, you know, El Chapo granted an interview to Sean Penn for Rolling Stones uh, after a secret meeting was arranged by the uh, Mexican uh, soap actress Kate Del Castillo. And then the Mexico's attorney general said that that was a factor. And then Sean Penn took offense to that and he expressed fear of his life. What's your take on all that? So, you know, this is um, this all happened in. September, October of 2015. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my take on that is we already knew where Chapo was. The only thing that happened when Sean Penn and Kate Del Castillo showed up was we knew El Chapo would leave the ranch where he was located at to go see them. He wasn't going to expose his hideout to anybody outside of the, the um, 
his, uh, his cartel. And so it changed um, what we wanted to do, but not by much. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, we waited for him to go back to the ranch, and then we went to pursue. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I thought there was a parallel between El Chapo and the, this heroin dealer from the late 70s named Nicky Barnes, a.k.a. Um, um, Mr. Untouchable. Because mm-hmm. in 1977, he did gave a cover story to New York Times Magazine where he posed for a cover, and then um, Jimmy Carter uh, saw it, and he was enraged. Within three months, this guy uh, was sentenced to life. And before that, he had beaten you know several several charges. He had gotten off, and thus the nickname. So, at some point, did El Chapo think he was? Untouchable? I don't know if he thought he was un- untouchable, but I, I, but I do know that El Chapo wanted his um, his story out there. So you know he's you know the whole point with Kate Del Castillo and Sean Penn was to get his story right. out right. there. Right. Right. And so um, you know El Chapo thought he was bigger than Pablo Escobar. Hmm. You know, um, but. But to answer that question, we were already pursuing El Chapo. So even when Kate came into the picture, she didn't come into the picture until after we had captured him the first time. And he was in prison. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, she started reaching out on Twitter, um, standing up for him and saying all this stuff uh, about him. Um, But truth be told, uh, we knew that um, El Chapo wanted to get his story out there. And it's it's, quite frankly, it's the reason why he he took the case to trial. Mm Hmm. It's, it's the conclusion of his story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, he really had nothing to lose but a mountain of evidence um, o- hanging over his head. And so why not go to uh, trial? And then it's the end of his, his story, really. Yeah, he was. He's, he's pitching a movie. I mean, I would think somebody on the run would have much more to think about than trying to pitch a movie. Um, but, uh, it, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something, um, you know, Nuno, Here's what happened. I remember um, we had we had Chapo's we had the ranch where he was was which was outside of Casala, Mexico, and three days prior to when we were thinking about launching on him, um, I'm sitting at my desk in the Special Ops Division and I see a picture of Kate Del Castillo and I see two other individuals and then finally I see a picture of Sean Penn and they're all flying into Mexico City. <laughs> And um, right, right off the bat, it's kind of like, are they really going to meet with Chapo? So it was kind of like a little surreal. Um, but they did. They, you know, they, the whole point was to, to get the story out there. And that's, that's what um, Kate was trying to tell Chapo, that she could be the, the vehicle to get his life story out to Hollywood, if you will. Why was his extradition to the United States so significant? I think that it really, um, it, it's a full circle thing in, in the sense that here is the biggest drug trafficker in the world, right? And the fact that we were able to work very closely with Mexico to capture him, work very closely with Mexico to extradite him and to prosecute him, it's so significant because it shows a solution to the bigger problem. And it goes back to how we collaborate with Colombia, with extradition. It changed how the Colombians move drugs throughout the world because we will extradite them to the United States and in some instances they'll spend the rest of their life in jail. Well, it's the same thing now with the sentencing of El Chapo. Mm-hmm. 
it shows that the rule of law um, is a solution and really working with Mexico to pursue these other high level, uh, you know, uh, the one thing that these organizations or these, these kings, kingpins, if you will, don't want is to come to the United States. They do not want to be in a U.S. judicial system. Um, and, and that's why when Chapo did come in, that was it. He recognized when, he, when we extradited him into the United States, into Long Island, that that was the end. Right. And, uh, you know, when he got there, he looked like he was in culture shock. Um, and this is a man who bragged about killing 2,000 people roughly over his career as a drug trafficker. So it was a kind of a bizarre scene, uh, surreal. What, what do you think was going through his mind? I, I think it's a combination of that. I also I, I think it is the culmination of a life of, 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 of violence, of evil, of doing all this stuff. And now it's coming back. Right, right up in front in his face, and it's personal here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's also a point where he recognizes he no longer has control. Mm -hmm. The control of his world, his circle, is now gone yeah. and coming into the United States. And so that's, wh that's what it was. It was a combination of things, in my, in my opinion. So you were at Long Island MacArthur Airport, right, when he got there. So just paint the picture. What was that like, the scene, the atmosphere? So, so when I got there, I got there at the tail end. He was already, um, I, I come up from Special Ops Division in Virginia, and I got right at the tail end. But it was all the different agencies um, there um, to see this, this person that we've, we've pursued for many, many years. Um, it was, um, you know, it was, it, to, to me also in law enforcement, it was um, satisf satisfaction because um, here's a guy that has caused all this, this harm, all these victims across the United States. To me, that's the full circle as well. It's kind of like, we got you. Now you're going to pay the price for everything that you've done to our country, not only the United States, but to Mexico mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. What surprised you the most from the trial? Because it seemed like um, even there were moments even El Chapo seemed to get information that surprised him and you've been on the inside and you know the public was gripped because of all the you know dr dramatic and sensational information what surprised you okay so what surprised me uh, a couple of things the first thing was it's the first time the public really saw uh, firsthand information painting the scale and scope of the cartel over generations <laughs> it really laid out um, not in a movie or in a book, but in real world, how big and how powerful that cartel was and had become, and all the, and everything. At sometimes at the lowest level to highest level of what that meant to build that criminal organization. Mm -hmm. I think that was the first thing that was really significant. The other thing was that there was that stood out to me personally it was that there was no def there was there was no defense. There was there wasn't even really an attempt mm -hmm. because. How could you overcome? Overwhelming evidence. That's right. You have a mountain of evidence. And, and here's the other thing I'd say is that was only a, a tidbit. Hmm. Wow. That was only a tidbit of the, of the real mountain of evidence. There was no need for, for overkill, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from a prosecutorial perspective, standpoint, um, because there was so much more. If we put all of everything together, it, it would have taken, you know, double that time just to get through it mm -hmm. for, what, for what purpose? 
Um, and so that's that, those are so those are some of the other things that stood out. Okay, there, there, well, the one, one thing that jumped out at me, and I was surprised it didn't get more coverage was based on testimony El Chapo's uh, connections to the DEA, and there were two uh, for, former DEA agents who uh, came out on record, um, I think a, within a year ago saying that they secretly met with El Chapo when he was in prison in 1998, when, when he was incarcerated in Puente Grande, and he had requested a sit-down to try to either um, cut his sentence or avoid getting extradited to the United States. He was going to give information on a cartel rival who had tried to assassinate him. Nothing came out of it. However, uh, soon after, his legal advisor, some guy named Umberto Castro, became a DEA informant and eventually uh, entered witness protection. So what can you say about this intriguing divide-and-conquer strategy that's been used in the past? Uh -oh. I mean, a DEA agent has been on record. That's stunning. You, you, when you say divide-and-conquer, you're, 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 you're talking about from a Mexican cartel perspective. Like right, how, right. You're getting information from one cartel to... It's it's just has it happened where um, organizations give up information on other organizations, of course, mm -hmm. uh, you know. But is it doing? Are they doing it from? Hey, I'm uh, Ray Donovan. I have this. No, they won't. They don't do it like that. They'll just put it out there, or have someone else put it out there. And and truth be told, sometimes the information is there's nothing behind it. So so we gather information from all different ways. Um, all different methods. And if someone calls into the embassy in Mexico and says, hey, I have some intel and it has, happens to be on a rival gang or rival organization, that doesn't mean anything unless there's some some substance behind it. Okay. So yeah. you guys have or will work it, on it, a case-by-case -case basis but depending you, no, on... No, it, it's not like we're going to work with a criminal that's, that's breaking the law. That's not going to happen. The first thing that would happen to someone like Chapo if he wanted to cooperate with us is he has to come to U.S. court and he has to fall on the sword, so to speak, meaning mm -hmm. he has to confess to every crime that he's ever committed. Right. And then we'd sit down with him. Okay. So you have to basically, as a, as a rule, come in and say, yeah, I did this, 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 this over this period of time, mm -hmm. and, and now I'm willing to cooperate. So you, we don't take information from uh, criminals, um, from active criminals that are still breaking, knowingly breaking the law. That doesn't happen. Okay. But when I say, okay, well, someone could call into to any consulate, embassy, and give up information. Well, certainly they can. Anyone can. Do we know where it comes from? No. Okay. Do we know if it's valid or not? No. Mm -hmm. Will we look into it? Probably. Okay. Yeah. Do you know how El Chapo found out? Um, that his IT guy was cooperating with the FBI um, because that was another pretty interesting situation. He's, he, I think, a Columbia computer whiz and college dropout. He created the encryption communication system for El Chapo, and then the FBI pressured him to give him access. And then they said when El Chapo found out, he ordered him assassinated but his people didn't know his last name so i it was just it just sounded bizarre so first of all it's like how did el chapo find out and then how could they not they said they researched him on social media 
and they couldn't find figure out his last name. How does El Chapo not know this guy's last name? It just sounds crazy. Well, I mean, it, it is crazy. <laughs> it is crazy, but it's also you know true. It, it doesn't mean it, they may want to um, investigate. Listen, Chapo did have his own way of investigating things. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that he was efficient in doing so. Mm. You know. Um, the communication people, you know, he had other communication people that were around him mm-hmm. that we knew about, that we also looked into. He did like trying to, to keep himself secure as, as far as technology goes. Mm-hmm. But um, it also led to his, his you know, his, him being captured. Right, right. And why did the federal uh, government consider trying to persuade El Chapo to cooperate and reveal valuable information, especially institutional support involving politicians and bankers? Because it would seem that would be the the most uh, impactful uh, way to uh, bring down the, the, the cartel. Cooperate for what benefit? Because if you're talking about a man who was responsible for uh, thousands of people dying. Does you do, do we really want to cooperate with this person? Um, and and it, you know, it comes back to there's there's an issue there, and there's a big issue. This guy is so violent, caused so much mayhem, mm-hmm. and throughout the United States and Mexico, that you know, there's no need to cooperate with him. Um, it's it just it, 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 there's there's really no need to sit down and hear what he has to say. I, I will say this though, sitting in on a trial. Um, you, you got a gist. You got the gist of it. You saw the violence. You heard the violence. You, you, you know the instances where he actually killed people himself. Mm-hmm. And so, no, it was just why do that? Mm-hmm. You you alluded to Rafael Caro Quintero um, earlier. He's the guy who um, played a role in uh, Kiki uh, Camarena's Enrique Kiki Camarena's death. I think he served something like twenty eight years out of a forty year uh, sentence, and then got. Uh, left jail because of the technicality and then went in hiding and uh, it I believe the DA has says he's an active um, member of the Sinaloa cartel and he's on you guys wanted list how much of that is because of what he did to uh, Camarena and versus him actually being an active member in his 60s after serving that long in jail. Sure. So he still is an active member of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, He still is into drug trafficking. And he happens to be the person responsible for the death of DEA agents. That we will not stop pursuing him. He is public enemy number one for us. Okay. And, And when you say he's active, he's active as far as he's become one of the leaders or is it hard to pinpoint his role as far as a leader you know it's you know that that, that's that's changed for him he is able to traffic narcotics Mm -hmm. um under the sinaloa um umbrella again and he is okay and i'm good okay i wanted to uh touch on uh first um the uh uh, money laundering. I, I saw that uh, the HSBC, uh, Europe's biggest bank, paid a record fine of almost two billion dollars for laundering money. Uh, you know, tied to El Chapo. But it, this ends up being a, a, um, 
a fraction of the huge profits that they get boosted by drug money. Is there no appetite among authorities um, to jail backers who enable uh, money laundering? No, I think there is. It's just, for us, if you think about what we're doing in DEA and other agencies, um, you're pursuing them criminal charges for illicit drug trafficking. That's really the beginning of that type of investigation. There's the other side, which is the financial investigation, which it's a lot more methodic and takes a lot longer to do. Mm-hmm. But as long as we can find the, the federal um, criminal charges, uh, we will pursue them federally. And so we have pursued them federally. I think what's happening as far as money laundering goes is there's a changing how, how uh, money is being laundered throughout the world. I talked, to, talked about it earlier. The Chinese gangs mm-hmm. now have linked up with Mexican cartels to move billions of dollars through trade-based money laundering mechanisms. So in other words, historically, if a, a load of heroin uh, came up here to New York City from L.A., mm-hmm. um, that same truck, it would come, on, uh, come up here via tractor trailer, that same truck would receive money from the previous load to transport back to L.A. and be smuggled down to Mexico from uh, San Diego POE. Those, those times have changed. Now the money from the heroin and fentanyl here being moved is going into um, Chinese communities. And the Chinese uh, money brokers are buying goods with that. And they're um, sending the goods back to China. And Chinese companies in China are sending the money to Mexico to pay the cartel. So it's a big circle of money laundering that's taking place here in New York City. Okay. And I'd like you to talk about uh, the groundbreaking move by the DEA to arrest two executives from a top pharmaceutical company. You know, this went way beyond the occasional million-dollar civil settlement. Uh, Talk about the significance of that development. You guys basically equated executives with drug lords. That's right, because, well, this is what we were saying with RDC, is that the executives there knowingly were breaking the law and putting people's lives at stake. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as you mentioned early on, the big pharmaceutical companies, manufacturers, distributors, pharmacy, uh, pharmacies, pharmacists, um, certainly played a role in overprescribing oxycodone and opioids to um, the American public. And in this instance with RDC, um, we didn't want to treat them any differently. We did not want to treat them any differently because they show up in a suit or they're in, uh, you know, in office mm-hmm. um, because they're sti- they still put many people's uh, lives at stake and they certainly played a role knowingly breaking the law uh, on purpose. Okay, well, I have taken up too much of your time. This it was just such an infor- informative uh, conversation, and, and you gave a lot of insight. So I appreciate it. The time went so fast. Uh, I, um, you know, you have enormous responsibilities to combat the opioid crisis. Some of the most violent criminals in the world. But if El Chapo uh, didn't scare you, I don't know who will. So the the bad guys have their hands full. But thanks a lot. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and I enjoyed uh, meeting you. Absolutely. The feel is mutual. My pleasure. Thank you very much for, uh, for conducting the interview. All right. While hustling to a meeting after the interview, Ray Donovan addressed the show's staple of naming a favorite comedian. 
For years, Ray loved Eddie Murphy, citing his first stand-up film, Raw, which aired on HBO in 1983, and also the hit follow-up, Delirious, a few years later. Ray also praised the old-school Saturday Night Live stars John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Currently, Ray's favorite comedian is Dave Chappelle, which confirms to me Ray's good taste in comedy. But Ray must be pleased about the news that Eddie Murphy's returning to uh, stand-up for the first time in eons. That's exciting stuff. We didn't have enough time for Ray to grade my comedy, so let me give a, a, a silly your mother joke here. Um, your mother is so fat, she got on the wrong machine in the gym, and it sunk. Someone notify the front desk. There's a human whale bobbing up and down next to an overturned rowing machine. She has sweat on her nose and is gasping for air. Please contact the front desk, or at least the Coast Guard. <laughs> In all seriousness, uh, this outro section is supposed to be a call to action. So check out my website, nunodemasio.com slash podcast for extensive notes and images about the episode. That's N-U-N-Y-O-D-E-M-A-S-I-O dot com. Then the backslash symbol and P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Nuno and Company also has a Facebook page that includes original artwork such as Donald Trump versus Barack Obama in basketball, which has been shared thousands of times. And if you're looking for a book to read, consider Parcells' A Football Life, which luckily made the bestseller list uh, some time ago. I'm biased, but I don't think you have to be a sports fan to enjoy the biography. It has plenty of life lessons. Um, just the other day, someone from Oregon tweeted, quote, The Bill Parcells biography is one of the best books I've ever read. Definitely recommend, end quote. That was very cool. So thanks much, whoever you are. I know my mom's not on Twitter, and I don't use burner accounts like the great KD. <laughs> NBA fans uh, know what I'm talking about. Actually, drug abuse is a significant aspect of the Parcells biography. Even Ronald Reagan, who expanded Richard Nixon's war on drugs, makes an appearance. When Parcells became the Giants head coach in 1983, uh, marijuana and cocaine use on the team was rampant. The NFL was still a few years away from creating a drug policy, so Parcells responded with self-education while taking a vigilante approach. He visited the Betty Ford Clinic, um, named after the former first lady who had overcome addiction to painkillers and alcohol. And then Parcells registered at a treatment center in New Jersey for a crash course. This is the kind of stuff that made Parcells Parcells. You know, at the, at the time, public concern about drug abuse was heightened. So in late 1986, Reagan signed the executive order leading to drug testing, the drug testing system that still exists to this day. Also consider checking out our debut episode with David Stern, the NBA Commissioner Emeritus, which to my pleasant surprise is still being downloaded uh, more than a year later. Uh, the interview made headlines uh, at dozens of media outlets, including the Washington Post, USA Today, and ABC News. And listeners in more than 50 countries somehow found the episode 
uh, which I think reflects the NBA's global appeal. But for some odd reason, it's recently been earning quite a bit of listeners in Ireland. I don't get it, but I'll take it. The wide-ranging Q&A, David reminisces about beating Donald Trump in tennis, uh, Nelson, Mandela, Nelson Mandela secretly visiting him in his hotel room in South Africa. He even riffs on Elon Musk's vision of a moon colony and then offers a uh, slogan for the Democratic Party, which he's uh, donated millions to. There's much more stuff in there. Anyway, my podcast hiatus is over. I spent a little time trying to help a good friend, Craig Moskowitz, an eye doctor on a telemedicine startup, BlockDoc. Telemedicine is seeing your doctor on a video chat, so it's a promising uh, promising uh, company. And then most important, I had to take care of my octogenarian mom coming off of major knee surgery. So my priorities are in order, but now I have some influential guests line up. And after relaunching Nunyo and Company, you won't have to wait another year in between podcasts. <laughs> so hopefully we'll catch you again sooner than later. Cheers.